As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello from self-isolation because I have COVID. I know, and I'm really sorry. And I don't don't feel I've been as sympathetic as I might have been. I've barely left my bedroom. I've been eating a lot of takeaway food. I've been drifting in and out of sleep, and in between that, watching YouTube videos and listening to Beatles podcasts. In some ways, it's been indistinguishable from my... uh, <laughs> regular life, but I mean, I've I've been very lucky in that I've barely been symptomatic, other than being a little bit coffee and um, a little bit tired. What's been going on with you? Well, since we sort of recorded together, we went to Cornwall for New Year. You said that you were going to go and stay in a lighthouse. Yeah, and it's the southernmost point of Britain, Lizard Point, uh, and the Lizard Lighthouse, and it's absolutely spectacular. And we were staying in a place next door to the lighthouse um which was delightful um and there was a foghorn a working foghorn and it was very foggy (laughs) for four out of five nights that we were there and so every half a minute the foghorn went off every half a minute yes but they supply (laughs) earplugs so that's good um i think i've even you know what because i sort of thought you'd be you'd like it i think i've even I might even have the uh, recording of the lighthouse. Oh, I'd lo- I'd love to hear that. Yes, please. Okay, hang on. Here goes. You, you didn't think I'd have this as a bonus for you. Could you hear that? Yes, it was. Um, it sounded quite melodious, didn't it? It did. I was expecting something deeper and more booming. It, it was melodious, but it was pretty loud. I mean, I just. Maybe my recording wasn't very good. I find it impossible to believe that you wouldn't have recorded something adequately. I know, I know, exactly. Anyway, it was great. It was. I, I strongly recommend it. It was the foghorn. You know, it was just something you got used to. I told my children, "We'll just get used to it," and we and we sort of did get used After to it. After four days, yeah. 
when you said you might be going there, you mentioned that there was no uh, mobile phone signal. You mentioned no internet. Yeah, that was good. That was good. How, how did the family dynamic cope with that? It was really good, actually. Honestly, it, made, it was transformative. What did you do? Played Uno, played Go, went for walks. Um, no, it was honestly, it was delightful. There's a picture opposite me of my primitive ancestry who stood on rocky shores and kept the beaches shipwreck free. Name that tune. Birdhouse in your soul? You don't know that one? 1990? Where were you in 1990, Ed? Being square. <laughs> uh, uh, I think that was uh, what the squares were listening to in 1990. It's hip to be square. So, what should we talk about what we're talking about? Yes, this week we're, we're getting back to nature. We're looking at how natural habitats can help us reach net zero. And, and there are many other benefits as well. And, and when this subject comes up, it focuses usually on planting trees to capture carbon. In fact, we devoted a podcast to that episode. Can you remember what number, Ed? 97. Yes, <laughs> It's remarkable how you do that. Uh, So we're going to look at other ecosystems. Uh, We are talking peatlands. We're talking seagrass. And before your finger strays towards the skip button, uh, two things. Number one, the potential of this is huge. The wildlife trusts say that this could contribute up to one third of the CO2 mitigation we need to achieve net zero with uh, lots of bonus benefits that we'll get into, as I mentioned. And as part of this... We're going to bring you the strange tale of the UK's lost rainforests and um, we're going to be telling you how you can get involved in mapping them. Our guests are Kate Jennings from the RSPB, environmental campaigner and author Guy Shrubsole and Richard Unsworth from Swansea University, who's also founding director of Project Seagrass. And honestly, uh, it is a really interesting part of both tackling the climate crisis and how we think about nature in this country. And we don't talk about it enough. And you're going to hear plenty of stuff to inspire you in this conversation. Do you have a reason to be cheerful for us? Yes, my reason to be cheerful is only murders in the building, which you recommended to me. You are a great recommender. And we're on episode nine, so we've only got one to go. And it is brilliant. It's really good, isn't it? If people haven't come across it, is it on Disney? It is Disney, yeah, Disney Plus, yeah. And it's um, it's Steve Martin and Martin Short, who I always love together. And uh, they're, they're paired up with Selena Gomez. They're three people living in one of those apartment buildings that any of us with New York fantasies would love to yeah. live in, you know. What, Called the Arconia, yeah. Yeah, I think it's based on a real building of, uh, that I saw a documentary about some years ago, but I've forgotten what it's called now. But uh, they, they are fans of podcasts, true crime podcasts and then a murder happens in their building, they decide to start a podcast about it. I mean, honestly, it's just brilliant. It's really fun, isn't it? Brilliant escapism. It's brilliant escapism. And uh, I I gave you a fun fact over text last night, which I should have saved for the podcast. Martin Short is the first cousin of Claire Short. That's amazing. Must find out whether they've met. Can you work your contacts and get Martin Short on the podcast? I'll try. What's your reason to be cheerful? My wife, for Christmas, has offered to buy me new glasses. 
I like your old glasses. Can you not see they're a bit wonky? They're not quite Jack yes. Duckworthish, yes. but I have sat on them a few times. Yes. They got trod on once. They were brought back from the dead by a jeweller in Chicago at some stage. And they're, I'm after some that are as close as possible to these, but not wonky. So I'm really looking forward to that whole process of going to the opticians, having somebody shine a light into my face really close up. Do you have any suggestions? Multicoloured. Timmy Mallet style. Mm. Elton John, early 70s, is this mm. what you're thinking? Definitely. Oversized, multicoloured. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. First up, we're going to talk to Kate Jennings, who is Head of Site Conservation Policy at the RSPB. Kate, hello. Hello. You join us from Snowy Settle. I do, in the Yorkshire Dales. Any birds on the bird feeder? Yeah, actually, it's been quite busy out back and I was wondering this morning if my pond was frozen over and the question was answered by seeing a blackbird marching straight across it. (laughs) Wow. And Kate, you were waiting for a dog food delivery, which has arrived. It's arrived, yes. Thankfully, I thought we might have had a a major interruption. Who do we have there, canine-wise? We have Maxwell. What sort of dog is Maxwell? Manky mongrel. Wow. So, so... In, in some respects, this isn't our first rodeo. We've talked about tree planting for, for carbon capture and storage in the past, but th- that just sort of scratches the surface, really. Can can you give us the beginner's guide to the, the UK's habitats and ecosystems, other than woodlands, that could be playing a much bigger part in reaching net zero, just as a, a starting point for us? Sure. Well, I guess the place I'd want to start is is the fact that we've got two crises on our hands. One of them is the climate crisis and the other is the nature crisis. Those two things are intimately linked. So the destruction of nature is one of the things that contributes to climate change. Climate change is one of the things that's contributing to the loss of nature. If we're all to get out of this alive, we need to solve both of those crises. And while pretty much anything you do to restore nature will help with the climate, some of the options for how we can tackle climate change will actually further screw up nature. So UK is home to a wide variety of diverse habitats, many of them very degraded, and a lot of them have potential for sequestering carbon and so helping to mitigate climate change. Woodland is absolutely one of those, but there are many others. So obvious examples would be our peatlands. We have internationally important peatlands and actually quite a high percentage of the global resource of peatland. And also our massive intertidal and marine habitats, which again have huge potential for sequestering carbon. And I hate to say this, because you know we're very pro trees on this. Oh, we 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 love them. Po- yeah. Podcast. In fact, we had a podcast called Tree Distribution, as I remember, um, uh, an episode. Do, do trees get too much sort of airtime or soil time in this debate? Do you think? I think they do. So so trees are fabulous. Nature needs trees, but trees are only can only be part of the solution. People love trees, uh, rightly so. And I think um, trees make for some very easy headline targets, which which maybe uh, makes them an area of artificially high focus within this debate. So they've, they've got a massively important role to play, uh, but we need to think of that as part of a much wider mix. And with regards to that vicious circle element that you mentioned, it's it's not just that we're not utilising 
these habitats, but it's the way in, in which we have and continue to use them that has contributed to the climate crisis. Can, can we talk about peat? Because what's so interesting about it is is peat at the moment is in the deficit column, but it, it, it could be a huge positive in trying to achieve net zero. Yeah, it absolutely could. So recently they added the UK's peatlands to the UK greenhouse gas inventory, and that revealed that the UK's land across the piece is now a source rather than a sink. Across the piece, across habitats, is emitting more carbon than it's managing to suck in. About 80% of our peatlands are degraded, and only 2 to 4% of those have been restored in some way over the last 30 years. So they're in a they're in a pretty shocking state. And because they're in that poor state, they're emitting the equivalent of about 5% of the UK's greenhouse gases every year. That's more than the annual emissions of HGVs on our roads. Can you tell us about good peat, bad peat then? Sure. Well, uh, good peat is wet peat, <laughs> uh, basically. So, so uh, peat takes hundreds, thousands of years to form. Uh, and when it's locked up and wet and covered in vegetation, it holds carbon, huge amounts of carbon in the ground. When you start to drain peat, when you start to set fire to peatland vegetation and you leave the surface exposed, when you dig up peat and flog it in garden centres, all of that, all of that carbon is released back into the atmosphere. And the story you're telling about peat, Kate, is part of a wider picture about nature in the UK and we're quite near the bottom of the league, aren't we? Yeah, so there was a, a bit of work called uh, the Biodiversity Intactness Index, which looked at how much of each country in the world's biodiversity remains intact. Uh, and the UK was in the bottom 12% of countries globally. And we're far and away the worst of the G7 countries in terms of how much of our biodiversity we've got left. Why is that? Uh, we are a small island with a high population and generally intensive land use. So, you know, pretty much all of our habitats and ecosystems have been modified by human activity. Uh, we've got large scale intensive agriculture, large scale intensive forestry, high use of chemicals, wide extent of urbanization. So, all of those things added together have led to some really impoverished ecosystems. So we know from the State of Nature report that about 41% of species in the UK are in decline, um, have been since the 1970s, and there's been no sign of those rates of decline slowing. Can you paint for us a, a picture of a better way of using or utilising natural habitats? Is it about giving them space to heal and regrow? And I guess there's a benefit to all this beyond just what it can do for net zero, which is obviously very pressing. But that's that's not just the only way that this can benefit us. Absolutely. So, I mean, the really the really good news, the reason to be cheerful is first that the places with the highest potential in our countryside to store carbon are also the places with the highest potential for nature restoration. So so there are really obvious places to work on both. And if we start to recover habitats at scale, then we bring back species from the brink, but we also start to store much larger amounts of carbon. And the really obvious places to do that 
are woodlands as long as it's the right kind of trees in the right places it's our peatlands it's our intertidal habitats salt marshes and mudflats and it's our marine environment what needs to happen to make all that happen (laughs) a lot of action on the ground it's the need to have really strong binding targets around nature's recovery just as we have for climate and then i guess it's about coalitions of the willing and making sure resources are in place to deliver so so a few examples of where the rspb is doing this i know people tend to think we're all about the big garden bird watch and we are um, but we do a load of other stuff too um, so for example we've been working with united utilities the water company uh, in horsewater in the lake district in dovestone in the peak district where we are restoring heavily degraded upland ecosystems and as well as the nature, the carbon, the flooding and the water quality benefits, the sites that we're creating in those places, they generate jobs, but they also attract a lot of people. And we're creating places that are, that are honeypots that attract um, people for their health and well-being as well. So these, these kind of massive win-wins when you do this stuff at scale. And then we're doing equivalent things around the coast, basically moving flood banks inland, allowing us to recreate huge areas of salt marshes, of mudflats. Again, we're creating habitats that hoover up a load of carbon that give home to a load of species and also amazing places for people to enjoy. Where is the government up to on this? I know there was this Natural England, a fairly major report on it in the spring of last year and some proposals were announced by the Environment Secretary. What is the government committed to? So um, we've got, as for climate, we have some fairly uh, bold commitments around nature's recovery. So the recently passed Environment Act includes a target to uh, halt the decline in species abundance by 2030. We've got the government's headline commitment to protect 30% of our land and seas by 2030. But I think... um, For nature, as for climate, we have quite a big gap between rhetoric and reality. And we have a long history of successes for governments making bold commitments and then failing spectacularly to meet them. Um, So I think the the challenge is is matching that rhetoric with action. You you mentioned that the government's target is 30% of nature protected by 2030. One of your reports, I think, says that a lot of the areas where the most kind of carbon potential gain and carbon threat is are currently unprotected is that right sadly it is so the government uh, states that at the moment we protect 28 percent of land uh, in the uk for nature but that figure is made up by counting an awful lot of places that aren't actually managed primarily for nature or indeed for carbon When you look at the area that is actually managed uh, primarily for nature, that's about 11.9% of the UK. And when you look at how much of that is effectively managed after years of cutbacks, that's more like 5%. So we've got a mountain to climb to get from where we are to where we need to be. In terms of the urgency of net zero, is, is this the button to press in that, I remember when we did the tree episode, there was some suggestion that it could be really great for carbon capture and storage, but the benefits would be not felt until more than a human lifetime away. In, in terms of the 
ticking clock that we have with Net Zero. Um, oh, is this Mac- Maxwell? Inevitable dog interruption. I think that was fantastic. I mean, can I just say thank you for arranging that? Kate? <laughs> well, you know, I like to deliver on my promise. So yeah, so so is is, is this a button to? press given the urgency of it or is it something that is more of a medium or long-term solution so uh, i think given the urgency of uh, the climate change and the nature crisis we need to be pushing all the buttons we've got and we need to be pushing them all now is the first thing i would say so it's far from the only button um but but it's absolutely one we should be focusing on now and it comes back to this point that right now UK land is an emitter. So right, if we don't do something, we just carry on making the situation worse. Never mind making the most of, of the potential for nature to start to help to mitigate the effects of climate change. Who's doing really well on, on this? There are examples in the UK, in the Northern England. You've got people like the Yorkshire Peat Partnership and the North Pennines Area of Outstanding Natural Beauty doing large-scale peatland restorations. The problem everywhere is that the amount of the amount of restoration that is being done is minute when it's compared to the scale of A, harm being done, um, and B, the amount of degraded habitat that we need to turn around. And, and is the challenge of that a, fu- a sort of financial problem? In other words, if government was willing to invest more, would that make the difference, or is it something else? I think... <sighs> I guess as with everything, it's a combination of factors. But but government investment and government policy to support this kind of work is absolutely key. On the podcast, we have a vision of a utopia, the Jeffocracy. If we were to appoint you, I don't know what the role would be, if it'd be the high priestess of habitats or the empress of ecosystems. But we, we were to put you in government uh, with free reign. What, what's the first thing you would do on day one on this? I guess... Uh, well, the first place to start would be to stop the rot. So to just get rid of some of the things that are driving damage in terms of both nature and climate. So ending burning of peat in the uplands, stopping the harvesting of peat for horticulture. Um, I'd probably like to get rid of uh, of exclusively coniferous woodland plantations, for example. So I think there's a, there's a bunch of stuff you'd do to, to, to stop the rot. Um, Next, I'd focus on protecting the best, sorting out all those places uh, where nature is still hanging on and carbon is still being stored and making sure they're in good nick. Um, and then once I'd done that, I'd crack on with restoring the rest. Sounds pretty good. And and Kate, if our listeners who who always like to get involved and do things to sort of help uh, on a whole range of things are thinking, well, we really like the sound of this, how can we be part of nature restoration in our own area, in our own community? Give them a bit of navigation, to, at least to start. I mean, I guess one really obvious current example is that the government is consulting on banning the sale of peat for horticulture. And there's a consultation that anyone can find online and respond to. And um, There are organisations like the RSPB, like the Wildlife Trust, like the National Trust, like the Yorkshire Peat Partnership around the country who are undertaking these kind of large-scale habitat restoration projects. And you can support them either by joining those organisations or by volunteering. So the Dovestone example in the Peak District that I talked about earlier, which is a RSPB and United Utilities partnership, there we've had loads of volunteers out on the ground planting sphagnum, the moss that grows peat, uh, doing tree planting in the gully. So you can get really hands-on if you want to. 
Well, you'll be pleased to hear that we're go we're going deep into the moss soon. We're going to be talking about tropical rainforests here in the UK. Oh, excellent! Yes, um, but for now, Kate, that was brilliant. Thank you so much, Kate Jennings from the RSPB and Maxwell. Thank you for having us. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B two B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B two B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. So as... uh... Jeff hinted, we're, we're now going to speak to Guy Shrubsoll, who's an author, researcher, campaigner, and he has a new book, The Lost Rainforests of Britain, which will be out later on uh, this year. Guy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, Ed. From Devon? From from Rainy Totness in Devon, yes, on the edge of the, on the, edge of the rainforest zone. I have, not, not devotedly, but I've been aware of the work of Sting for many years, and not once... Have I heard him mention the rainforests of Britain? Um, not necessarily two things you put together, rainforests in the UK. So can can you tell us more? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think to be fair, I, I also didn't really believe that Britain had rainforests until I moved to Devon about a year ago and started uh, visiting some of them. And they are absolutely amazing. It's it's completely true. We are a very rainy country and it's really in the, in the really no surprise that um, we have a habitat that's evolved to uh, thrive on the huge amounts of rainfall that Britain gets each year, particularly in the west of Britain, which is where temperate rainforests really thrive. And people might be wondering, well, does this mean I can go down to Cornwall and see, you know, parrots and toucans and, uh, you know, giant rainforest trees? It's not quite like that. Um, what what really defines uh, a rainforest is that um, the, the, the climate is wet enough so that plants can grow on other plants. Uh, and so you get what happens in these temperate rainforests is that just like in tropical rainforests, it's mild enough and wet enough for plants to grow on other plants, epiphytic plants, they're called. If you were to go into a temperate rainforest, you'd be overwhelmed, I think, first off, by how green it is, even in the depths of winter, because it, every tree 
and spare surface in every branch is dripping with mosses, for example, which are an example of an epiphyte, or uh, with uh, lichens, um, these very small symbiotic organisms are actually a mixture of plant and fungi. Uh, and in many of our rainforests, there are also ferns, even entire trees that grow out of other trees. They're called air trees. They're kind of created by seeds being dropped into kind of the nooks of trees that start growing out of the top of other trees, which is just amazing um, to see them. It's this wonderfully biodiverse, rich habitat that many of us don't really recognise uh, exists in this country. Um, but it does. And, and, it, and indeed, it once probably covered about 20% of Britain. The point of looking into this for me is not just simply to kind of mourn something that's gone a long time ago. It's to try and inspire people to start to bring that, uh, that habitat back, to bring back Britain's lost rainforests. Well, t- tell us more about that, because you've got this project uh, that you're, you're asking people to help you with, which is mapping these rainforests. What is it exactly you're asking of people? How can they uh, join in with this? And, and, and what are you trying to achieve with it? It was quite remarkable to me to discover that there doesn't seem to be a map of these amazing rainforests um, uh, in Britain. And so I, I sort of wanted to start to explore this by asking people to help me out. So I started a, a Google map uh, and then um, started up a blog, sent out a tweet, in, in, you know, encouraging people to, if next time they go out on a walk in a nice bit of wet woodland, to send me a picture and I can have a look at them and see see if they kind of meet some of the criteria for uh, potential inclusion as uh, a temperate rainforest on this map. So if you want to join in, um, you know, you can visit the blog I've set up. It's uh, called lostrainforestofbritain.org and send me uh, a photo uh, of, of a woodland that you visited. I should give perhaps maybe one or two clues to people, though. Firstly, um, it's most likely that you're going to find a rainforest if you're in the west of Britain. So if you're in somewhere like Devon, Cornwall, Wales, the Lake District or Western Scotland. Um, uh, but they do occur in some other places, in other parts of the country, uh, where there's sort of the microclimate uh, effects kind of allow uh, these rainforests to also um, to also thrive. I'm right in saying that Christopher Ellis is it did yes. map the places that would be sort of potential for temperate rainforests in Britain. Correct. That's right. That's absolutely right. So there is some fantastic work that's been done by ecologists and climatologists like Christopher Ellis, who are looking at the the kind of the the overall temperate rainforest zone, as, it, as you like, if you like, in in Britain. Um, but what that doesn't necessarily do yet is is sort of map down to the fine grained detail of where we have fragments of rainforest left, and then we can start to build from there. We can start. We can say, okay, this is what's left. How do we how do we restore um, the bits that are degraded uh, and been damaged, and how do we allow them to expand and spread and reconnect? Um, to be something uh, approaching some of their former glory. With this mapping, is land ownership a factor? Because I know it's something you've done work on in the past, and I wondered if that that was part of it. And maybe if you could speak more broadly about how that plays into what needs to be done in terms of uh, nature restoration and tackling the climate crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, My previous book the first one i wrote was is called who owns england uh and um what i discovered was that england is owned by a vanishingly small number of people um about one percent of the population own about half of the land in england so yes absolutely land ownership has uh, a really important bearing on how we use land um 
and how it's protected or, or uh, mostly it's been uh, damaged and destroyed um, by by landowners and farmers in the past, unfortunately. Um, but I do think it's also, you know, the responsibility and the and the op- an opportunity for landowners and, and farmers and land managers to start repairing and knitting back together these lost habitats. Does that mean, though, to some extent, we're at the, the whim or the mercy of whether landowners want to do something about the climate crisis for the common good or not, though? Well, um, I think there's lots of ways in which, um, the, you know, everyone, the public, can be putting more pressure on landowners to do the right thing. Um, you know, after all, we do subsidise landowners to the tune of two and a half billion pounds each year from taxpayers' money. And that's the whole debate that's um, going on at the moment. And what are the other things, apart from this, these issues around what landowners are doing, that need to be done to, to, to sort of reach the kind of shrub sole vision, if you like? <laughs> it's also um, the case that um, many of our existing fragments of rainforest, um, particularly in places like Scotland, um, are really suffering from something that previous land, you know, landowners have previously done to them. Um, they, a lot of them are in uh, large estates that used to be, or many still are, large hunting estates, shooting estates where um, pheasants are, are bred and shot. And in the past, Victorian landowners um, often introduced invasive species into our rainforests, particularly rhododendrons. Rhododendrons go absolutely wild in our rainforests. They, uh, they're basically destroying them. Uh, they shade out. Uh, the native trees from being able to, to reproduce and, 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 and create saplings, uh, and they need to be they need to be taken out these these rhododendrons. So um, that that is something that I think really more landowners should be um, given support to do, but also really made um, it their responsibility to do uh, to to kind of clean up this mess that has been uh, left we've been left with. Something that Kate said to us is there's there's no bad habitat restoration in terms of net zero um but how significant a part could temperate rainforests play in that particularly i think uh, we're talking about habitat that uh, has a richness of different species of of plants that will uh, and plants and trees in them that would be contributing to carbon sequestration and, and locking it up the other thing that's quite interesting about carbon storage and separate rainforests. Uh, I read a study recently which is looking at the carbon in tropical rainforests that's stored in the soil that accumulates in forest canopies. Because what you have um, in tropical rainforests uh, is that um, there's so much uh, plant life that's growing on the branches that they create a soil layer in the canopy, which itself is a massive carbon store. And um, I don't think any study has been done of temperate rainforests to, to see whether that's the case here and that could be a really interesting area for investigation and and research i, I want to get out ed i don't know about you but i want to get my cagoul on i'm seeing it very much Definitely. as being like pokemon go but for moss and and lichens <laughs> excellent i'm very glad and they're definitely they're very they're very charismatic places they're full of really weird and amazing species that once you start getting into them i think um people get captivated and a lot of them a lot of the species of uh, lichens and mosses have very weird old kind of folk names. So one of, one of my favourites is called Witch's Whiskers, for example. And it's got this amazing lichen with amazing whiskery edges to it, sort of resembling perhaps a kind of uh, a witch. Is it like basically Jeff's moustache? Is that what you're telling <laughs> It's us? a little bit like that. There are certainly, uh, there's a whole, a whole set of lichens called beard lichens. So if you want to go and compare your beard to which lichen you think it might most resemble, then uh, be my guest. <laughs> 
It's been brilliant to um, to talk to you. It's an incredibly exciting project. We really look forward to your book. Th- thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on. Well, finally, we're going to speak to Richard Unsworth. Richard is the founder of Project Seagrass. He's also an associate professor at the University of Swansea. Hello, Richard. Good afternoon. Thanks for, for having me on this podcast. So, Richard, as somebody who has devoted a huge amount of your life and energy and, and brain to something that most of us haven't given much thought to, what, what is so special about seagrass? We, we want to see it through your eyes. Seagrasses are just a, a humble green plant that live live in our oceans, and themselves they're they're not incredibly biodiverse, but they create this incredible habitat, and in what would be a a, a lifeless, muddy, sandy bay in our ocean, by having plants in it, you create life. Um, animals find a home, and all that incredible life that uh, wants to find a home congregates in in seagrass. So suddenly you've got this place that's full of fish, that's full of little invertebrates, shrimps, um, little snails, um, all sorts of interesting anemones and tube worms, all sorts of really um, amazing life. And we're, we're talking, Richard, specifically about the larger role that restoring our habitats and ecosystems can play in tackling the climate crisis. Uh, Can you tell us more about seagrass's role in sequestering carbon? So if you've just got a a sand habitat in a bay, um, there's no photosynthesis going on. But if you put a plant in it, then there's there's photosynthesis going on all the time. So uh, you've got these plants sucking uh, carbon dioxide down. uh, They're producing oxygen. And with it, they're growing. So they're turning that that atmospheric um, carbon into um, organic carbon. And once you've got that created, there's this huge opportunity for that to be locked away somewhere. And the the way that seagrasses grow, they they form this thick, really complex um, habitat that sometimes extends for um, hundreds of hectares, uh, even many kilometres in some places around the world. And... And as those, those plants die and, and recover and regenerate, a lot of that carbon doesn't, doesn't get washed away, doesn't degrade. It actually gets locked into that, uh, that one habitat. But at the same time, you've got all these, these sort of leaves that are in the, in the water column. And what they do is act like a really big filter, which means that carbon that's floating by, whether it be dead bits of seaweed, dead bits of animal, um, Get sucked and, and basically trapped into that seagrass uh, meadow. And do you talk to us about how much of the seagrass has been lost, because there's extraordinary figures that 92% of the UK seagrass has been lost in the last two centuries, um, and 39% has disappeared since the 1980s. Why is that? 100 years ago, seagrass was being lost because people re- were removing the last of the oyster fisheries and they were you know, transforming ports and industrialising um, huge areas um, uh, and, and ripping the, the, the stuff up. In the last 30 to 40 years, we've lost it because um, we continue to, to manage our, our land pretty badly. Um, we allow our rivers to be degraded. We allow pollutants to, to wash in them. We, we don't manage our farming activities very well. We pour all sorts of fertilisers, uh, herbicides onto, onto the land and, um, you know, we, we can do a lot better. 
let's talk about the work you're doing around restoring seagrass. Um, t- talk us through what it involves. I'm guessing it's a wetsuit. <laughs> well, well, we we have all sorts of people involved with our, with our restoration work. What do you actually do, Richard, to restore it? They're, they're plants that, that live in the ocean, you know? So that means they produce seeds. What we do is... Uh, we go into the ocean um, either at low tide or diving uh, or or snorkeling and we go and pick those seeds. It's a pretty laborious process to, to do that. And uh, um, we, we send armies of people out, out to do that. So uh, it's quite effective in a wetsuit, underwater diving. Um, and it's pretty, pretty nice as well. You know, some of the, these places we, we, we go to, uh, lovely, lovely experience to be under the water it's quite a, a relaxing activity. Just uh, it's almost like underwater blackberry picking. You then replant the seeds, like do you? Yeah. So so once we've collected them, we then take them back to a laboratory. We basically chuck them in a disgusting vat. We bubble them around so they're moving. The plant material rots away, and you've got these quite woody um, carapace seeds that then drop to the bottom of the uh, of the vat, and uh, we go and plant them. And the way we plant them is analogous to how you might use a pot in a terrestrial environment. Um, but they'd fall out of a pot and a pot isn't so easy to use in, in the ocean. So we use a little bag and we put them some sand into that, put the seeds and we, we get a, a diver to scoop um, a bit of sediment out and then put that bag into the sediment, uh, which is a bit laborious, but it's, it's, uh, it's quite effective. Just in terms of the scale of this, can this make a difference at scale? It sounds, as you said, quite fun, but quite laborious. Can it make a difference? At the moment, what we're doing is is small scale, and um, that's never going to transform our oceans. What what we want to do is take it from being more of um, an allotment garden style process to being more sort of agricultural, really. If you, if you can plant uh, whole seeds of uh, wheat, why can't you do the same with seagrass? And um, uh, it's just about um, developing the, the technology, refining some of our methods. And that's where we're, we're really headed um, to, to do this because we, we believe that it can be done at much bigger scale. Ultimately, whether it's seagrass, whether it's salt marsh, whether it's oysters, you know, um, whatever it is, uh, we have trashed our ocean in the UK. It's an utter disgrace. We need to to take fundamental action if you know um, if we want to create a a nation that has any level of resilience to climate change. We need to to think about restoring uh, our ocean habitats. Very well said. And if if any of our listeners want to get involved in Project Seagrass, how do they do that? One of the things that that um, people can do if if they if they ever come across seagrass or they're interested to learn about it, they can uh, get involved by using um, our website seagrassspotter.org or the the phone app that goes with it. But also we we we're on a Facebook group where volunteers uh, get involved, so there will be um, opportunities. Um, there but also you know we're a small charity and we're always looking for donations and assistance there to to keep going honestly richard you've been incredibly inspiring and insightful we're really really grateful to you for joining us we're all part now jeff aren't we of project seagrass absolutely i'd be very keen to to get you out and uh to get you to to see this it's, it's just amazing to go and experience some of the biodiversity that's in uh, our coastal seas in the uk 
Well, what did you think? Well, I got a couple of uh, new entries on my enemies list. Mm. Coniferous forests and rhododendrons. That's fighting talk, those. I think Kate is right when she says that the climate crisis is the most urgent thing, so you throw everything at it. If you were sitting behind that desk, as you likely will be in a couple of years, how much bandwidth do you give to this? Well, I mean, look, it's covered by DEFRA at the moment, the nature biodiversity stuff. But I think it is incredibly important. I actually think that we talk too much about the climate um, part of this and not enough about the nature crisis. And the two obviously are interlinked, but it is a climate and nature and biodiversity crisis. And I think that's why this has been a really interesting discussion. I often think this, that maybe partly growing up in the city, you don't think about land really at all, do you? No. You know what I mean? You tend not to think about land. And I think, you know, we've all thought a lot about green spaces and whether we have access to them in the last couple of years. But I think there is something really quite inspiring about it. You know, I'm the man for the gigatons and all that. But, but you know, there there is more to life than gigatons. I never thought the day would come I'd hear you say that. I think this is what this episode was all about. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Oh, we're in the outro. The first outro of 2022. Well, it's the second, isn't it? No, there was no outro on the Jack Thorne oh, episode, you see. Right. I had um, lo- lots of people get in touch on Twitter and elsewhere yes. to say that they uh, they really enjoyed that conversation yes. with Jack. Well, I did it. I did too. And if people have want to get in contact with us, we really love to hear from people. They can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. I have a little something to tell you. Before my self-isolation, um, yeah. we went for a walk on Hampstead Heath and there's some kind of fair there at the moment. Yeah. And my son is obsessed with, you know those stalls where you can throw something and win a prize? Yeah. And he's he's always saying, Dad, Dad, will you try and win a prize for me? And I, I generally choose not to compete. But Sarah will always do it. And long story short, he ended up winning some kind of knockoff Rubik's Cube. Great. And then within half an hour, he was saying, I wish Ed was my dad. And he was saying this because at some point I told him you're very good at Rubik's Cubes, whereas I I don't know how to do one. I was good at them about 40 years ago. You can't give me a hint. You need to read a book, a a manual on how to do it. If you think of it now, there's no muscle memory. There's a little bit of muscle memory, but it's mostly gone. If one was in your hand, would you be able to do it? No. It's a confession. Then I won't be couriering one to you in time for next week's episode. No, no, please don't. (laughs) I'll fail you yet again. I'd like to thank our guests, Kate Jennings, Guy Shrubsole and Richard Unsworth. Emma Corsham produces our podcast and gets it sounding all shiny every week. Thank you, Emma. Thanks to Joe Kenyon at Goldfish for his support as well. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our idents and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been Foghorn. He's been Leghorn. And these have been... Reasons to be Cheerful. <laughs>